All right, welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in downtown Rock Hill in the Revan studio. My name is Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of small town USA. No, okay. So today we have, of course, behind the beer, Micah. How are you behind the beer, Micah? Nice. Well said. Well played. Well played. Classy. Chris, how are you? Classy Chris. Classy Chris. Classy as always. <laughs> you look nice. Thank you. I look classy. You look classy. And we have our actual guest today, Alfonso Freeman. Welcome, Alfonso. <laughs> oh, he fell asleep during my oh, introduction. Oh, um, hey, yeah. how you guys doing? <laughs> oh, doing so great. We, we, had to, we meditated before we hit record. Yeah, right. <laughs> get in the zone, and we, we lost Alfonso. Yeah. <laughs> so Alfonso Freeman is an actor. He is a voice talent, and he is the son of the famous Morgan Freeman, which we'll get to a little bit later. And he is a transplant to Rock Hill. To Rock Hill. Rock Hill, South Carolina. Yeah. So we got to start there, man. What? What? How did you end up in Rock Hill, South Carolina? Okay, I'll give you the uh, the. Uh, it, it was all accidental, you know. Um, my wife and I came from uh, L.A., a suburb called Hawthorne, and uh, you know, L.A. is expensive. You know, we did what a lot of people do. We, you know, took the money and decided, let's get out of here and start our lives more simply. So that's what we did. We, uh, we got in our car, sold everything, uh, sold the house, got in our car, drove across, across country, had a great time. And we knew we wanted to come to the Carolinas. I had been talking about it for years. And I... I mean, for weather or location in the country or, or why? Uh, I, I would have to say, because I was thinking... Charlotte. I thought okay. Charlotte was basically more of a metropolitan area, uh, that it might be a, a good fit, but not as big and as frenetic as, as uh, Los Angeles is. Right, yeah. Frenetic's the right word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. And so we, uh, we, we uh, dropped, dumped into Charlotte, and then uh, not long after we got here, maybe a week or so afterwards, we were looking for apartment and then a house. And uh, we were told that Fort Mill is the is where people are trying to get to. So, and we wanted land. Well, mm-hmm. we weren't going to get land out of Fort Mill the way they were doing things. It's like it's becoming end to end subdivisions. Yes. And so we uh, went a little further east, looked in York. And that's uh, where I live, by the way, a little oh, tiny York. I love York. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love York. And now that we're here, my wife kind of regrets it. Oh, really? Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <she's> beautiful. <laughs> yeah, she wishes yeah. that we had maybe picked a little bit of York, but it's yeah. not that far mm-hmm. removed. Uh, so we split the difference and uh, started mm-hmm. looking in Rock Hill. It was, and it was an accident. We just saw something there. And, uh, and uh, the first house we saw was the house we put a bid on, wow. and we got it just That's like great. that. That's cool. great. Bought it from a gentleman and his wife, older gentleman named uh, Forrest Bice. And uh, cool. we've been there now. We moved in in, where did we move in? June. June. Yeah, we moved in in June. And the house is still down to sticks, you know. We've still got studs showing. Uh, we're living in the basement, and we're just having the time of our lives because it's just beautiful, and we haven't met a bad person mm. yet. Um, we've been welcomed by the neighbors. Someone brought us brownies. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They brought us brownies. That doesn't happen in Los Angeles. Right, yeah. You well, know. unless they're pot brownies. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, they'll, they'll kick they, your kid's ball back into your yard. <laughs> right, maybe, and they right. accidentally yeah. delivered them to the wrong house. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Dude, are these yours? <laughs> yeah. They were the most delicious brownie that I... It took me a minute to come down from them, but they were really... <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> no, that's nice. That's Southern hospitality. For oh, me. my goodness. Southern hospitality. But we... Yeah. Seriously, it was very nice, and um, and so now we're just uh, we're trying to settle into being, you know, semi country. You know, yeah. we're kind of in between York. We're in between York and and Fort Mill. So and yeah, yeah. It's yeah. funny that we Rock Hill. I'm sure to many people is country because it's in the south. Yeah, you know? but yeah. it's funny how if you live in Rock Hill. This is the big city, and York is the country. Oh, yeah. Like and even country. farther out, you're like Bullock's Creek, way out in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, At which point, York yeah. is the big city. Yeah, right? exactly. That's country. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, but I like um, the fact that you can drive 10 minutes, literally. And I've always, always said, I've done a lot of traveling, um, working in film and television and commercials and so forth. And, you know, and what I noticed as compared to L.A., 
20 minutes in any direction, you're out of the city. You are you are in the country. Right. You know, you're passing mm-hmm. trailer homes and places where tornadoes have passed trailer homes. Right. Yeah. Uh, but in Los Angeles, you know, it starts, Los Angeles starts at the ocean and ends in Phoenix. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That makes sense. It's just, you yeah. know, constant wow. traffic and noise. Driving. And they're having the same um, problem for good or for bad, depending on which end of the money, you know, uh, you are. Uh, of a lot of gentrification. Yeah, right. Um, downtown LA is mostly uh, larger chain style restaurants. They have staple centers down there. Um, just it, hotels. It's just really picked up and everything. And I, I remember um, the last time I went to Chicago, um, what was it? It must have been 1997. And they had gentrified from 86 the, first, the, the second time I'd gone there. Right. And uh, it's just changed dramatically. And so that seems to be what's happening in most of your um, larger burgs. Um, and people feel it. You know, if you want that energy, they want to buy a townhome. But, they, but they're doing what we did, which right. is essentially, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you've ever watched The Walking Dead, you realize... If something happens, I don't want to be yeah, with all those people in yeah. the city. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so is there also, so there's that, right? The traffic and the cr- crowding and kind of the way it's developing. And the and potential all. apocalypse. And the poten- and and potential apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. You always have to keep that in mind right. you know, on the radar. <laughs> well, it's, when, not so, it's not so much better yeah. here because, you know, we're used to stores and being able to get to stores. I mean, oh, you, I mean, how would you fight the zombies without stores unless you have a full-on arsenal at the house or something? Well, the good news is out here, people probably do probably have Probably do, right? Yeah. <laughs> But but so there's there's all that. But what about kind of the vibe as a person in your industry? Um, it uh, you know, it's I only have what movies and TV have given me mm-hmm. to sh- to teach me that there's this like really superficial, crazy, competitive, not very healthy type of scene and vibe that it goes on in L.A. and Hollywood. Is that real or? It's not. Um, now, I'm going to be the lone dissenting voice around that sort of thing. Um, I think uh, the reality is, as somebody who likes to study the psychology of hum- human beings, is everybody who is at home in a place, born and raised there, this is home. You, right. you don't think of it as anything. People in New York City who are born and raised in that area, they don't go to the Statue of Liberty. Right. Yeah, uh, right. People in L.A. don't go to Disneyland. You know, yeah. They go when they're taking guests, but right. if they've gone, yay, I did it, <laughs> and then they go home and they never go back again, right. or they, they're constantly bringing guests. But the simple reality is you know, I'm from Los Angeles. I was born and raised there, born in L.A., raised in Compton. And uh, straight out of literally, <laughs> literally, <laughs> wow, yeah, okay. And before and, that was a phrase, right? Well, it was just a, it was a phrase that sold records, but it was, yeah, it yeah. was home and <laughs> right. home for anybody it has your good areas, your bad areas, your good people, your bad people. Um, but for the larger population who thinks of Los Angeles as this place, the way they think of Los, uh, excuse me, North, uh, New York, it's just a place to live, right? Mm-hmm. right. And um, the mystique is what transplants take on themselves. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Absolutely. You know, uh, the first time I went to New York, I thought you were supposed to cuss everybody out, so I did. <laughs> That's uh, funny. <laughs> I mean, I did literally I happen. was like Mick Dundee. I was like, hello, hey, guys. <laughs> like, hey. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, that's a knife, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in L.A., you know, the assholes were people from Cleveland. Right. That's <laughs> right. Not from That's L.A. Yeah. yeah, because they're defensive. They think they've got to put on that armor. Exactly. Yeah. And they're trying to make it in the business, so they think, you know, you have to be the biggest asshole possible. That makes right. a lot of sense. Um, but people from there, it's just home. You yeah. know, you mow your lawns, you raise your kids, you yell at the city council members, <laughs> and you keep going. Watch, rinse, repeat. Well, we have, <laughs> before we get into uh, uh, learning more about you growing up in Compton, let Let's look at the past however many years, you know, as you've had the success that you've had. I mean, you've been in, you know, a lot of movies, a lot of uh, voice work that, I mean, by is significantly successful. These are talking about movies that are like the major movies. I mean, you might not have been the leading man wearing a cape in in some of these movies, but being in these movies, being in that culture, being in that group, I mean, these are like 
top of the line movie? Like Seven. Uh, what are some? Help me out here. What are, What are some other movies? Well, of the major movies that have been out there, and I have to qualify some of that because it it, so, it sounds better than, than it is. You know, I, my big get as far as its iconic nature is the Shawshank Redemption. Right? Yes, it is one of the greatest with, movies. Yeah, that's yeah. One of the I have to say, that's a movie yeah. that like. Uh, you know, you get like a, a movie critic list, and they've always they're going to put Casablanca or you know uh, Citizen Kane at the top. Yeah. But it's like when you look at like actual movie fans, people that consume movies, oh yeah, like the internet movie database, there. like yeah. viewer, it's Shawshank Redemption is consistently the favorite movie of all time. I love that. Yeah. Oh, my one God, of AFI's amazing. top 100. Well, I'm very proud to have been a part of that. Um, but my part was you know a blink you miss it part, other than the fact that I said something that maybe everyone remembers. Right. Um, and so that that's what my roles have been. Nurse Betty, Seven. I've been in four of my dad's films, and they were, you know, they were they were bits. They were bits, but they helped get me started in my career. Um, I've done more independent projects and a lot of tons of commercials. Um, yeah. Um, well, you're the voice of Uncle Ben's Rice. I'm the voice of Uncle Ben's Rice. Which I would like to just say, wow, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> Thank that. Thank you for all that delicious rice. <laughs> it's delicious rice. So you, you know, make you know, the like... rice is what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, the character Uncle Ben's is supposed to be the CEO of yeah, yeah. this organization that makes and sells rice. That's right. You just um, turn on the machine. I, it's just a, ri- it's a rice <laughs> making a button. machine. It says more rice. There's a button. Yeah. More rice. Like, have some carbs, people. Ignore, yeah. ignore the health pundits. It's rice and rice is good yes. for you. We're here to talk about rice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, but I've, had a, I've had what I consider to be a good uh, career. Um, well, actually, I, noticed, I have to point this out because I, I noticed when I looked at your internet movie database page that you were Robot Chicken. You were the, the voice I of was in Robot General Chicken. Zod on Robot Chicken. Kneel before Zod. Classic <laughs> fit. Yes. Now we've nice. got it. Our own little version. That is iconic as well, and I own that. Um, oh, man. Awesome. That's such a great bit. I, 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 I love it. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a working actor. Uh, I, I want to say working young actor. Uh, young is probably going away now. <laughs> um, but I, you know... If the average income for an actor, uh, and they're still saying the same number, five thousand, it's got to be closer to six thousand at this point. Uh, but it's not it, it, the average actor just doesn't make that much money. And when I finally got to where I was making six figures or even you know five figures, I was a happy guy. Yeah, uh, and I still am because I managed to actually have a career, be able to stay in L.A. and not have to get too many side jobs. And uh, and that's the state of affairs for right now. So that makes me successful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And you sound like that you you seem to be a happy person. And your journey to Rock Hill um, seems to be born out of a, a desire to just continue to explore and be happy. And it it's not aligned necessarily with. Um, pressing the gas pedal for, for more monetary gain in the film industry. I mean, it, it's going to make it a little bit harder, I would imagine. Um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's actually a good question. Uh, good, you know, there was a movie out a couple of years ago called 20 Feet from Stardom. And uh, one of the people featured in the film, 20 Feet from Stardom, for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, the story of a bunch of women uh, who worked as background singers in the music industry, mostly doing um, background for a lot of um, stage projects uh, for known artists, but also for um, records. And um, they worked hard to try to have a a mainstream career, you know, to be the star themselves. And, uh, you know, it just didn't work out for them that way. Well, one of the people said, you know, there's a certain amount of um, ruthlessness you have to have to be in this business. And that resonated when I heard that, uh, because I'm not that ruthless. Uh, to really achieve the kind of career, the seven-figure career and everything, you have to be, in many respects, an asshole. Right. You have to not care about family. You have to not care about the things that other people say that they care about. Now, there are those who, you know, on whatever end they decide to do it. Some women, for example, will have their career, then when they have children, they're basically their career is over and they're focused on being, you know, moms, which is great. 
for a lot of the guys. It's just, you know, I want my career. And uh, the price is, you know, the kids. My, my own father said, you know, when they asked the question about what did you have to sacrifice to be an actor? And he said, I didn't have to sacrifice anything. My kids did. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Um, uh, so that's kind of how it goes. You know, I didn't even meet my father until I was 24. I mean, in person. Um, <clears throat> when I became an actor, I had kids. Um, their mom and I was not together at the time, but I knew I had a responsibility to raise them, to have an income, to do what I needed to do, and that's what I did. Yeah. And now, granted, I had something to prove that you can do this and have a career, and I did manage to get a career. It's not that career, though. Right. And I had to reconcile and still do have to reconcile um, whatever the cost was to have that career. I wasn't willing to pay that price. You know, I, I think about that. I've thought about that a lot. I, you know, I think that there's a question that is um, unanswered, but it's a, it's a good question that is, can you be, and this is a very male kind of thing, I think, but can you be a great man and a good man at the same time? And, you know, you look at people like Steve Jobs or, you know, all these people that have done just great, achieved greatness. Mm-hmm. And you look at how just screwed up their, like, their personal ability to have lasting relationships and just, you know. Mm-hmm. It, so can you be a good, steady man? You know, because we have these, we grow up as boys idealizing both things. Mm-hmm. We sure. idealize the good man yeah. and we idealize the great man. And then we struggle the rest of our lives trying to be both, you know? Well, when you're the child of someone, and I can only speak peripherally because, again, I wasn't raised with my father, so I don't have that childhood experience of saying, you know, well, my dad, he came home. and I mean, there there are a lot of kids who have the same complaint about their father because he's just a hardworking man, you know, regardless of his career. You know, he worked in in the auto industry. Right, right. He was an, an executive. He was a doctor. And because he had to have that career, the children suffered. And his argument is, well, look what you have around you. You have this roof over your head and so forth. Later on, those same kids get older. They appreciate their father for doing that. But when they're coming along, they know they suffered somewhat. So it, it, it really kind of doesn't matter if you're an actor or if you're a doctor. The, the issue really kind of is, can you be a father? Can yeah, you be, yeah. and there's always going to be a, a problem. I mean, I'm diver- divorced, <laughs> divorced, sorry for my stumbling of my words here, but divorced from my kid's mom and my own kids suffered. Now, I thought I'm going to make sure I'm there for my kids. And I was, you know, we had our weekends, but every child has his or her own experience of how well it's working for them. Right. It's never enough for the kid. If you're there every day, it's it's not enough. If right. you're there, Absolutely. you're yeah. going to every game, they're like, well, yeah, but you missed that one that was important to me. Yeah. So yeah. kids have their own self-conscious way of seeing the world. Sometimes it's good for the parent to know that the kid appreciates it early. And sometimes it's like, are you seriously kidding me? You get to eat Captain Crunch every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I had to eat oatmeal. Yeah. You don't yeah. get this, you know. I'd uh, like to switch places with you for one day. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's happening so to me? So let's talk yeah. about the circumstances around, I mean, your, your father, Morgan Freeman, is, is an extremely famous person. Yeah. Um, like in, the, in a very short list of extremely famous people. Yeah. So talk about the circumstances around. You said you didn't meet him until you were 24. How, how, how did that all happen? Well, um, let's see. How can I tell this without sounding like I'm throwing my dad under the bus? Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, typical guy fresh out the military meets a really hot woman. Um, Recklessness. And, yeah, it's a good way of saying it. And, uh, you know, he wasn't famous at the time. He was just fresh out the military. And, uh, you know, met my mom who was... Um, uh, in crisis because her mom had passed away, but she was still trying to survive and all. And uh, they became friends, went out, you know, yada, 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 I'm here. Birds um, and the bees. Hmm? Birds and the bees. Birds and the bees, yeah. Those are some angry birds <laughs> and some really vicious bees. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I'm the product of all of that, you know. Uh, and um, But my dad early on knew what he wanted, so he left... Um, and left uh, from the Los Angeles area and went to New York, and uh, my mom stayed there raising me and other my other siblings. And um, 
we didn't, me and my brother, I have a, I have an, another, an older brother. Um, you have like eight siblings or something, right? I, had eight, I have eight siblings, 11 total. Wow. 11 totals. But those God. are the ones from my dad and from my mom. Yeah. And, and he went uh, to act, right? When he left to New York. Uh, yes, he went okay. to New York to chase it. Yeah, okay, so okay. that's what he was after. And um, he was driven, singularly focused. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Al- he always knew what he wanted mm. to do, and yeah. uh, he went after it. Um, uh, but I didn't know who my father was um, until one day I walk into the house. Now I'd been watching the Electric Company like every other kid. It's one of my favorite <laughs> yeah. shows, along with Sesame Street, and uh, I watched it for years and didn't know. Oh I was God. watching my father. Oh my and one day I come in from hanging out with my buddies. You know, I'm a little older now, 14 years old, but they're still showing reruns. And my mom calls me in the room and says, hey, Alfonso. And I'm like, what? Here's your dad. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I run in there. I'm thinking he's standing in the living room. And, she's, and I'm like, where, where? On TV. What? And I look on TV and I did the same thing people do when they look at me and they see the similarity between yeah. me and my dad. They'll kind of t- look in, tilt your head and go, and, and then I could kind of see it. Um, I, I think I look more like him today yeah. than I did then because I was a kid. I was 14 at that time. And, uh, and uh, so that's when I found out what he was doing. Um, and uh, we made attempts to connect with him, but, you know, Legal figures got involved, and and so we didn't make that connection. Uh, you fast forward, um, and I grew up as a Christian. So um, uh, now, while I don't do religion today, you know, I still believe in God. But at that time, I remember after I'd met my dad, asking the members of my church to pray with me that I can finally meet him. Um, at how old was I? How old was I? Nineteen, working for a telemarketing firm. And um, he was listed in the phone book, and so. Uh, and you called him from work. I called him. From no work. way. Yeah, and oh. that then we don't have we didn't have what we have today with cell phones where you can just call anywhere and there's yeah. no long, long distance charge. So, did you make the sale? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I made one or two that that day, but uh, we we you know I called him, and this was how the conversation went, and I'm hearts pounding and everything, and I said, uh, and he answered the phone. Hello. Is this Morgan Freeman? Yeah. Do you remember a lady named Lolita Atkins? Yeah. Do you remember her having a son named Alfonso? Yeah. Well, it's me. Hey, how you doing? That was a conversation. There you go. And, uh, you know, and I was like, wow. I couldn't wait to get home. I was still living at home with my mom, and I couldn't wait to get home to tell her I've Finally talked with my dad. My siblings were all like, really? What? What? Wow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and just to be clear, he's, he, of the siblings, I'm, he's only my father. Okay, gotcha. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so everyone was like, wow, wow, wow. Um, and that was it. Uh, five years later, uh, well, let me, let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, finding out who he was, where he was, and having a conversation, I was almost less interested in what he was doing and whether or not I could meet him, I wanted to know if I had cousins, uncles, aunts. Because one of the reasons why I'm here in Rock Hill is because everything that I ever wanted in life, I did not want to grow up in Compton. We were poor. We were beyond poor. We were good times poor, you know. You, you, You know, Roach infested poor. It wasn't cute. It was not cute by any stretch of the imagination. We struggled the whole way. Was it violent? I've seen my share. Okay. I've seen my share. More more than a, a kid should see. Yeah. Um, but you know, I also survived it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, you, you, you develop a certain kind of toughness and if you have a certain kind of heart, you just use that toughness to achieve better things. Uh that's what I sought to do. You know, I did not have any love or interest in jail. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. Um so but I found out I had an aunt. I found out I had a grandmother, all the things that I always wanted. She lived on a farm down in Mississippi. uh, And it was, you know, because my friends were all every summer. They went off to the south to see some relative, some big mama. And I, you know, and I don't didn't know if I wanted that, but I was jealous that I didn't have it. Right. And uh, didn't meet them physically right away. Um, But I did find out find out that I had relatives and I was really happy. 
Now I got relatives coming out of orifice. I, <laughs> it's like, God, wow, so many people. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> wow, you too. Okay. You know. Shortly, um, shortly after uh, Shawshank Redemption, I guess. Yeah, right. All of a sudden, uh, yeah. yeah well, when he started, when yeah. he started rising up, there was a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, it there was a lot of there was a fair amount of that as well. Um, but that was what I wanted. But I still didn't meet him until five years later, and uh, he was in Los Angeles working on a TV movie. I had just come home from church. I was down to my underwear, taking my Sunday afternoon nap. Don't bother me. <laughs> and my wife at the time comes to me and says, there's somebody at the door to see you. Wow. Well, tell him I'll, come, I'll see him later on. No, you really want to see. The, tell him I'll come by later. You know, no, get up. You really need. No, I'm taking a nap and I'm trying to be tough. You know, I'm trying to be a huxtable. Right, you know, yeah. I'm trying to own my world. And then she said, get up, put some clothes on. All right, fine. I'm just gonna they're just gonna see me in my in my underwear if they're gonna come by without being announced. Put some clothes on too. <laughs> okay. Throw some pants, go to the door, and there he is. And um, that was the beginning of our relationship. Wow. And 1980 May of 1984 that we first met. And uh, I at one time from the phone call I could say, Well, I won't know my won't say I've known my dad most of my life until I've turned thirty eight. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I won't have known my dad most of my life to have touched him until I turned forty eight. Well I'm well past that, so now I've known my dad most of my life. And well, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny and hearing you tell that story and You're a very good storyteller. And it's funny because, you know, you're talking about how to make it in a career, you know, you got to sacrifice that love, the family and love. And and that's true of like, if if you want to skyrocket to the top of pretty much any industry, but it's definitely ubiquitously understood in Hollywood. You don't, you either have a family and you do that, that thing your parents did, or you go have Hollywood and you sacrifice yourself to it. Exactly. And the interesting thing about that is, film is storytelling Mm -hmm. and the task of every story is to show us what life is and the theme and what matters and the the point of living that is what stories are about who are acting exactly sacrifice that to be the storytellers themselves which is what i blame a lot of the you know a lot of times you go to the movies you're eating vomit that somebody ate and vomited, that somebody else <laughs> ate and vomited, right. somebody so you're else not ate fond and vomited. Of, right, okay. Yeah, okay, and uh, that's it. a pretty uh, graceful way to put it. <laughs> yeah. but you, I'm hungry now. How about you? Classy yeah. crisps, yeah. like it we call it. Eat those yeah. peanuts. Yeah, they'll settle your stomach. <laughs> um, but it's, and that's sort of the issue, I think. And, it's, and I've heard some filmmakers and writers say that, too, yeah. that at some point it hit them. If I don't live a life, what in the hell am I telling people about? You know, right, it's, right. it's it's funny because you know now everyone does a Kickstarter to get funding, mm-hmm. and it's I think for a lot of young filmmakers, it's they 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 have to get on camera and compel people to give them money, right. and it's the first time in their entire lives they've ever ever stood back and thought, why the hell am I doing this? Because they have to get on camera and be like, you should give me money because, yeah, yeah. and right. they're just like. Boo. I have no idea. Well, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned the superhero movies and all that, and I'm a big fan of all that. Um, but in the second Avengers, which, again, big fan of all the movies, um, all the Marvel movies, even the DC stuff, but the second Avengers, there's supposed to be this scene where they're at this farmhouse, and it's Hawkeye and his wife, or whatever. You remember that? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As a person who lives in that world that he was, like, wanting to get away to eventually... But this person who lives that every day, it ranks so inauthentic. Yeah. So inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm totally with them on aliens are flying in New York, and I believe in that. That's totally authentic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But them trying to pull off like, oh, honey, I wish you would stay a little bit longer, came off as so inauthentic. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, 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 there's nobody the, around to inform it with reality. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, not. That's, that's, that to me is a perennial issue. I think we're pivoting here a little bit, but that's the uh, perennial issue in Hollywood. Um, Telling real stories and not contrived stories. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to we have to put something in there that shows that he's got a family and that, you know. But there's not much at stake if you went from being a guy, you know, who was cutting logs to being a superhero over here, and your wife saying, "Well, I really don't like it if you leave." Right. Yeah. You know, that's not reality. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like right. yeah. you know, it's it's like the movies where you see someone say, um, you know, we've seen hobbits and everything else, and someone and someone will say in the movie. Well, how could that probably not even talking about that? They're talking about the the guy saying, well, a little mouse came out of that hole and the hole yeah. disappeared. And they'll say, 
I don't believe that. You've seen hobbits. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean yeah. you don't you believe know, where, that? Yeah. Where, where does this yeah. strange, all of a sudden, you can't believe shit yeah, stuff come right. from? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. And I, and I, it's the one thing I find, or among the many things that I find in Hollywood, that's just, it's just difficult to believe, and it makes me lament uh, Hollywood filmmaking right now yeah. because the 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 effort to tell a story and keep it pl- really plausible and realistic has taken a backseat to just, and I'm talking about if it's a fantasy film, everyone at this point that they've seen everything should know that this is all possible now. Yeah, Everything right, yeah, in this right. world is possible, so, so there is no place where you can disbelieve anything anymore. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and I think that filmmaking has lost that ability to stay connected to whatever reality it's presenting. Yeah, right. that's one of the issues is that anything, you can make anything image you want therefore no image is that special yeah and it's the concept of verisimilitude which is the um, idea of truth in the small pieces if all the small pieces add up you'll believe anything yes you know it's funny we were watching like the mummy returns or some terrible movie and my wife was like uh i mean here mummies are coming out of the ground and stuff and she's like I don't think that their son would have light features. Both of them have dark That's features. That's funny. And I'm like, That's what? Right. There's mummies coming out of the yeah. ground. Yeah. Are you kidding me? It's but, like, but who's going to have a problem with that if yeah. you've seen one mummy? Yeah. Well, that, but that's the thing. You, if you want people to buy those mummies, you've got to build a bedrock of the of stuff the that they know. Yeah, of exactly. small things. That's what I mean. It's all your mummies are useless. Yeah, yeah. It's all got to be in line. So, but let me jump back here because, you, 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 Alfonso, you seem to be a uh, person who appreciates quality storytelling, uh, quality movie making, um, and yes, you know your father was in that industry. And then I want to hear the rest of kind of the ne- how you got involved with him after this meeting in your living room. Mm-hmm. But um, did you have an appreciation for the the art of storytelling and the uh, media of film and TV before you started to pursue a relationship with your father? Absolutely not. No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and understand. I mean, I went to movies like everyone else. I mean, I, this was '84. Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then uh, there was Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back came in 84. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just like special effects. <laughs> you right, know, yeah. and special effects were, were not computer driven. They were guys in model shops making things. I mean, I loved that. I loved melting faces. I loved all that yeah. kind of stuff. So um, I wasn't as much into the story as I became later. Um, it was, well, yeah, it was later. What the the benefit of those uh, times for me was that even though they were special effects, they were still great stories. Right, mm-hmm. Steven yeah. Spielberg, George Lucas, Amen, yeah. they knew how to pull together a great story. And yeah, they were they had their plot lapses and things, but for the most part, the story held up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The emotions were there. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you right. could carry into the effects. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, it made you want to go back and look up. You know whether or not there was an Ark of the Covenant. Whatever happened to that box anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, so it, it was that sort of thing that, that I was into. But for me personally, and even for as being an actor, I always had the kind of the, I don't know if I want to call it gift, it sounds a little arrogant, but, you know, I did church plays. I did, right. I did school plays. Uh, right. You know, I was always the person that they wanted to put in some sort of a lead because I had the, this, I don't want to say the ability to carry it, it's just I guess I had that it factor, whatever you want to call it, that it made me somewhat watchable. Uh, so when you found out that uh, Morgan Freeman was your father, were you kind of like, oh, <laughs> now I get it? No, no, again, because I was not on that page. I was okay. not. I was my thing at that time was I was into graphic design. Okay. I was. I planned to be a graphic designer. I dropped out of college, but I was doing graphic design. Still was. Um, I was a musician. I was a church musician. I was writing uh, gospel music all the time. You know, my um, my uh, idol, if you want to call him that at the time, was Andre Crouch. So I was writing songs, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, but I didn't have a an image of myself as an actor at all. Wow. Um, that didn't happen until I got laid off of my job in aerospace. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I'd been doing plays and everything, but I was not... I was not chasing it professionally. And so I had gotten laid off uh, in 1992. This is a true story. November 4th, 1992, I get laid off my job in aerospace. Uh, you know, the Cold War is over. 
defense industry collapses a little bit. Nirvana had happened. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you know, we had Leonid Brezhnev and Pio Stroika and, you know, and Reagan was like, okay, damn, what do we do now? Right. Uh, you know, they tore it on the wall. Now what? Um, and so jobs went away. And November 5th... Now look, we fight the poor people. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Turn those guys around. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. And, and uh, literally, November 4th, I got, got laid off, walked into work. They walked me out with my paperwork. And, you know, I was like, I, you know, I could fight this, but do I really want to? And my answer was, no, it has to really matter for it to matter. And it didn't matter. Yeah. So I went home and I was at once happy and kind of like, uh, now what? And uh, November 5th, I wake up in the morning, you know, I get up, I look myself in the mirror and say, and I've been thinking about my dad, you know, he made it late in life. Why not? Why can't I? So I looked in the mirror and said, you're an actor. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And uh, there's something, you know, I, I do occasionally, I'll do, um, uh, what do you call it? Motivational speaking. And there's something about the moment of epiphany for a person when you make that decision at the moment of epiphany that seems to motivate or, or, or move the entire universe on your behalf. Now, if you're just saying things because, you know, you are trying to manipulate the, the universe, it doesn't work that way. But it's, it's almost like the universe has to believe that you believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you right. believe it, everything's going to happen. And it did. It was, it was crazy, but it did. You know, um, I had gotten a job um, as my dad's assistant on Shawshank Redemption, I wanted to be in it, and I got an audition, and I actually got the little part that I had. And, um, and I'll tell you, there was this one crazy little thing that happened. You know, I didn't know how the movie industry worked, so I calculated when I, once I learned what you would make doing it. Oh God, I'm going to be here for this whole shoot. I didn't know that they bring you in for that much of it, mm-hmm. and then you go home. Right. Um, and so when I found out, I was mad at myself for being so presum- presumptuous. Uh, but I calcu- calculated that I would make something in the neighborhood of $22,000 if I worked on the whole shoot. Well, damn, if I didn't make $22,000 between that role and being my dad's assistant, wow. it, it, it was exactly, exactly that. Exactly, wow. Yeah, and, um, and I've not had a period where I did not work. Um, awesome. I think I, there was one period where my income was like really almost nil. And then after that, it was just, it was constant. It was jobs coming in and yeah. it was like everyone else and my my dad characterized it as kind of a, a um think of it as a, a upward spiral mm-hmm. where all the downward spirals are below your highest point but higher than your lowest point you know mm-hmm. and it kind of goes like this right and your career you know income wise and profile wise kind of does this kind of thing yeah. now if you drop out in one of these down here well you're done you know, um, it, it's also a war of attrition. If you don't uh, stay with it, there is no chance you're going to make it. Right. And I chose to stay with it and, you know, make it is relative, of course. Um, part of the um, thing that I do when I'm talking to people about, uh, you know, when I am doing motivational speaking is trying to get people to stay connected to reality. Um, one of the things I realize in the commercial world, I've done tons of commercials, make good money. And but there's a place where people want to make it. And early on, there's jealousies. It's like, well, why is he getting all the work? Why is she getting all the work? Why are they stars? How come I can't break out of this? And and I had some of that, too. But at one point, I kind of stopped and thought about it. And I realized, you know, there's enough to go around for everyone. Yeah, there is. If you've ever done a job, you did a job. And if you've ever gotten a nickel for that job, you got paid. Right. Uh, the problem is for you is going to be. Am I going to be jealous of this person for what they've got, or am I going to be thankful for what I got? Right. And it's a perspective of abundance versus scarcity. Exactly. Yeah. The idea is it's not like it's not like there's one pie in the universe and we all have to split it up. And, right. And I'm trying to get as much of it as possible. Right. It's that we can we, we just keep making pies all day long. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you have to you start reining things into things you can control. Yeah. Like because I mean I've had to learn the same lessons and I and specifically with do it like the level of like where we do the indie movie stuff mm-hmm. like the very super low budget indie movie stuff. And you, even on that level, you experienced that jealousy and stuff. And yeah. it eventually became all that I can control is how good I am. I can't yeah. control anything else. You so let me control the hell out of that. Let yeah. me just keep trying to get better. And 
that's my path. Exactly. I can't control anyone else's decisions with anything but how good I am. You, that, that is it. You I mean, I have, I won't get into this too, too much, but I, I, I like to watch um, scientific shows, shows about, you know, that talk about the, how the universe works. Yeah. And, you know, if you've Actually, ever... Actually, your dad does one of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he, he's, yeah. he's done that. And they'll show uh, Earth as sort of a fabric, you know, kind of um, explaining, you know, the theory of relativity and special yeah, relativity. Like space-time and all and that. And space-time and all that. And you see this fabric and you see this globe on it, on it and then where the, where the planet is, it'll, it'll be kind of a dip in there, and mm-hmm. that represents where the gravitational pull will be. Um, well, where humans are concerned, it works the same the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have a gravity. Uh, we all have a place on what I would call human space-time. And the way human space-time works is uh, every person that is born, um, it, the moment they're born, they are a thread in human space-time, in the human existence. Um, before any human being was ever on the planet, uh, Things were happening, you know, creation happened, dinosaurs, whatever else, and they all produce a fabric of their own. Then we show up, and then we produce a fabric of our own, each individual. And wherever you are from the place that you're born, you, are, you move through life, either through choice or circumstance, on that fabric. And every place you are on that fabric is an intersection between of where someone else has been, where uh, some event has been, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it uh, in, informs where you're born, mm-hmm. it informs whether or not you're, you are a person who is particularly lucky or a person who struggles quite a bit. Uh, you are making choices and, and our choices, you, you're constantly bobbing and weaving and navigating, trying to uh, make better choices than the last choice, but everything that you do leaves a trail of thread that someone else will stand on in that same intersection and get some kind of a different result because you existed. Absolutely. And that's kind of how it works. And when I came to realize that, um, I came to understand what luck is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some people who get there and it just seems like, in quotations, a clear path for them. My dad didn't have a clear path, but he's extremely lucky today. Um, From the place that you uh, get to that place of luck, Maybe it's because you're making money for someone. Maybe it's because you've made a lot of money yourself. You know, there's, there's that scripture verse that says, uh, or that uh, Billy Holiday sings, them that got shall get, them that not shall lose. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's very true. Mm-hmm. The more you have, the more friends you have. And you get luckier. Things are given to you more. My dad's swag bags from the Oscars have <laughs> always been great. <laughs> you know, and, then that, and that's kind of how it works. And so when I came to realize that, it doesn't say that I don't have control over things. I, I am making choices every single day, and you can only make the best choices that you can make. They may or may not pay off for you. But every choice that you make that moves you along that fabric is a choice where you land in space and time, where there's an intersection between someone else's existence and something else. You know, at 35 years old, space and time, you're X, you're X spot, and you somehow or another, you are in the right place at the right time so that your script gets bought, mm-hmm. you know? And so no one else can ever be on that spot. Mm-hmm. You're there. And that's the way it works. No right. one can ever be where you've been right. and benefit the same way you have. Mm-hmm. No one can. Um, because it's, it's a unique yeah. point in time. Space, exactly. Yeah. Space and time is you like know, that, that. That's a beautiful image. I, I, I think um, it's funny that you talk about that because I am actually have a, have a stalled article that I've been trying to write for about a year that is um, about how revitalizing downtowns... How, have a, has a gravity. Yes. And and you look at kind of the urban versus rural, especially like where we live, but really everywhere around the country, but the urban has the gravity and so it can have detrimental effects if everything gets just exactly. pulled as fast. It's like Armageddon. Everything gets yeah. pulled as fast as it can to the city. But you, So you have to have some type of equilibrium mm-hmm. like a solar system has yes. where there's this like wonderful balance, you know. So I've been thinking about that a lot and uh, in the context of cities. So it's interesting to think about it about individual it's like we're an asteroid in that metaphor yes you know what i mean passing through different solar systems pulling towards an innocent planet (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) waiting to wipe out a whole race of dinosaurs (laughs) well exactly you know it 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 precisely works like that i mean we have a gravity the larger the personality the more people gravitate to that personality um 
fame, money, you name it. Whether we want to gravitate or not, you know, right now Trump has got a gravity. Mm-hmm. We hate. Well, I can't say, speak for everyone, but some people hate that gravity, but they still get on, uh, uh, right. get He's on uh, news wires and look him yeah. up. You He's know, pulling yeah. them regardless. Exactly. Or, or have gone yeah. past hatred into horror. Horror, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even but, shock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there, there. For all the things that we can be afraid of, there are things also that happen way out of the box, perhaps that change the entire scope of things. For example, mm-hmm. uh, their urban centers do have a gravity, but there's a kind of an awareness taking place among many people living in the urban centers that are saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of people here and few resources. Mm-hmm. Do I really want to be here if things go down the, pot, down, down the drain? People are writing scripts like The Walking Dead or other right. things that are making people think about the reality that you know this gravy train can only go so far before we realize we have nothing. If God forbid a terrorist attack of some major sort happens in Los Angeles or New York, there is no getting out of there right away. And right. where will you go? Katrina taught us how fast things oh, can yeah. go downhill. Can go south in exactly. a major co- developed country. I mean, where you would think that would never happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and a lot of people coming to these smaller towns, you know, are coming with L.A. or big city sensibilities and no knowledge of how to survive, how to plant a garden, you know, what seasons... We don't know. We just know that it can't be sustained forever. Right. Um, but these are the things that can that nature produces to cull the uh, uh, the wildebeest, so to speak, right. that are tra- chasing you know the the rain. You can chase the rain all you want to, but everyone's not going to survive that run. Uh, we talked about it on a couple podcasts ago. We talked about if if the rural areas around a city were connected to that city by food, supplying food to that city versus mm-hmm. we get food from a grocery store which came from all over the world. We have no idea. Nothing's in any season because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's coming from everywhere, wherever. I can right, always sure. get an avocado. I can always get a tomato. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's always red. You know? yeah. Yeah. And it's shot up with hormones. Who knows right. what it's got in it? You know? Yeah, exactly. But um, so if we weren't so disconnected from where our food actually came mm-hmm. from and if the cities were supported by the rural areas around it, right. you would have a lot of people in balance and harmony, mm-hmm. I think, out of necessity because they got to work together, you know? Yeah, I agree. Interesting that you say that because the connecting that to the idea of fear and terrorism or whatever, it's like if you're doing that, and it could, we were talking about it specifically because we were talking about the small town mentality. Like, you know, in this small town, there's a lot of people that are like, they have this inferiority complex about other places and mm-hmm. they, they're angry and hostile about mm-hmm. it. And if you could connect people and give people a role mm-hmm. that fixes that issue. And it's like, we're, we're in this thing where we're worried about terrorism as it is because of people who are somewhere else who have lost that connection. Sure. They don't feel connected to other people mm-hmm. and they're angry and horrible and doing destructive, terrible things because they've lost touch with the fact that we're, we all live in a yellow submarine. We all, <laughs> we, you know, we're all in this together. I don't yeah. care who you are. If you have a heart in your chest, we are all in this together, no matter where you live on the globe. Yeah, we really are. Um, it is, the issue is wherever we are on the globe. I right, mean, that exactly. is the, the, the luck factor. I, I call it luck because um, it's just space and time. Um, I, I have to be clear about that. Luck is, we take luck as something that can be manipulated, but it really can't. Right. Uh, luck, faith, grace, whatever people call it at any given time, um, it is just where you happen to be in space and time and what has to happen in that space and time to uh, provide life for the people around or to say, there are too many people. We need to clear things out. Right. You know, nature is... Income de- mosquitoes. Income, mos- yeah, income right. Zika. Income <laughs> yeah, a, right. a, 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 a comet. Uh, you know, whatever things that can happen that can make, that changes dramatically the population such that, you know, the earth can balance itself back out again. Yeah. And because we have choice in the matter, in our existence on, on this planet, to try to stay alive, to try to uh, manipulate the food sources and everything else, we think we can live forever. And we, all we get is more numbers. Well, that's just more numbers for some sort of a mass extinction event that, that comes to everything. Uh, and so we just have to uh, be ready for that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, just getting connected to another human being, mm-hmm. to another group of human beings, and getting to the conversation that we are not different, you know, mm-hmm. not, not so markedly different. Okay, you come from the South. You know, you come from the north, you come from the east, the west, you come, you're black, you're white, you're whatever. You know, we have a sameness. We are different, but we have a sameness. Now, the, the, the sameness just says 
let's talk, let's compare notes. Mm-hmm. The difference says there's something to celebrate about your about your difference mm-hmm. because it could be an asset to me, and yeah. it can be. Yeah. You know, right now in this whole Black Lives Matter thing, one of the things that's coming up uh, in discussion is white people need to help. We know that there's a, a kind of a slapback answer that says all lives matter that sometimes is seems to be kind of a self-conscious response to it. You know, no, we're not saying... Yeah. White people's lives it's don't matter. It's just weird. Lo- lo- it's just reason and logic. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual spirit of what's being said. It's exactly. just a silly word logic. Well, but but to, to, to not take away from anyone saying that, it's like, okay, rather than us, black people, arguing with white people about, no, black lives matter. You just need to listen to us, you know, which is what a kid does in a temper tantrum. Mommy, listen to me. Okay, <laughs> we get that. But the way to do it is to get people to empathize. Okay, well, if all lives matter, then you should be marching with us because you could see what's happening to us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. so it, it, it gets us on the page of empathy rather than offense. And, and I think that that's what has to happen throughout the world, whether we're talking lives matters, whether we're talking about food, whether we're talking disease, you know, who's, you know Zika's a big thing right now. Uh, it's a huge thing. Um, but we don't know how huge it's going to be until... You know, we start seeing a whole bunch of kids with microcephalic heads. And all of a sudden right. now we're like, whoa. In this conversation just immediately here and then in our lunch we had a couple of weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. you obviously have a social awareness uh, yeah. about you. And um, do you find that, that, that your work will evolve more into uh, social impact? Or is that just kind of something we all just always do as intelligent, you know, compassionate beings or... Um, the, the answer to the last part of the question is we should do more of it, but we don't. Right. Um, it's scary. It's scary to take on a social set of values and, and, and be what some will call a militant, what some will call uh, an activist, what some will call something. Uh, because when you take on that role in our world that p- likes to paint pictures, uh, scary pictures of other people and other things, mm-hmm. They will, they, they will turn, for example, a bunch of Black Lives Matter people into um, terrorists, or you know, and that's not what, what they are. Even the Black Panthers wasn't that. Uh, that doesn't say that there are not people who, out of anger, might try to shift the mandate right. of a given uh, organization and a given cause. But the larger group of people get it. You know, whether you're in it or out of it, you get it. You just have to let, stop letting the pundits and the talking heads try to paint another picture so that they can change the narrative. So that part's scary, and I can understand why people don't join in. When I came along, um, I came along during, uh, as a kid during the Black Panther era, but I was a kid, okay? During the 70s, when the Crips first started, you know, still a kid. I just, I didn't join the Crips because when the guy asked me, I was like, I don't want to die, so no. Right. You know, I don't want to be part of that. It was easy for me. Um, I was not so socially conscious. Again, I grew up as a Christian. Forgive everybody. So I forgave when I probably should have knocked the guy out who kept calling me nigger. Right. You know, I, I, you know this was before polit- political correctness. So I had, at that moment, probably as much right as him. He, he felt like he has a right to call me a nigger and make all kinds of racist jokes. But I got as much right to knock him the out right you know and yeah. uh and we walk away he understands now maybe that i shouldn't call him that and we don't have to worry about political correctness <laughs> right <laughs> you yeah. know it's simpler right. that way yeah, it, it, yeah. we may <laughs> need to go back to that yeah. yeah and uh but that we are here now what we see in our world in america are a few things we see uh people who are feeling disenfranchised black people who are free, being who feel disenfranchised from justice, from by law enforcement, by the judicial system, you name it. We have a no less significant uh, feeling of disenfranchisement from white people. Uh, I, as a black person, I get why we feel what we feel because we felt it forever. What we're realizing now is white people feel somewhat of the same thing. They fought back with it by saying it's reverse racism. You know, well, the reality for me is that there needed to be something to help level the playing field for black people who are so far socially behind. But here's uh, the other side of that coin that we as black people have not really looked at. And I have added this to my activism. 
And that is, you need to start listening to white people. Yeah. We're not talking about wealthy white people because, yeah, there is such a thing as white privilege. Uh, a white guy might not be as harassed as a black guy in a larger urban area. But a guy someplace in Montana living in a trailer park will be just as harassed as a black guy because he's the only one there and he's poor. Mm-hmm. So he gets no better break than a black guy in, in L.A., or someplace else, simply because he's a poor person. So there, the assumption is he's on meth, he's on drugs, whatever. What if he's just showing up at Walmart trying to get a job? Or he's well-known for whatever it is he's been involved in, but he's trying to change his ways. And he's not giving a break in the system because he's poor. Racism. I, I just read it. I got to find this article. I, when I find it, I'll give it to you. But racism was a tool that was created by the wealthy white European elite, British elites and whoever, to keep poor blacks and poor whites separated. I didn't know that. You know, I was just a black guy think, thinking, well, shoot, I need some, you know, g- get off of me. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened during slavery times, you had all these white slaves and they were intermixing and intermingling with black slaves. All right. And the Elite are saying, oh, wait, this is not a good thing. So what do they do? They tell the poor whites, you're superior. So we're going to put you over these black slaves. So now the poor whites are now the slave drivers. They're not wealthy. They're never going to have slaves of their own. You know, if they have any at all, one. Okay. So now over generations, the same amount of generations that black people have been mentally conditioned into their place in society, so are poor whites. You are superior. Now, what do they have to... you don't have two nickels to rub together, but you're... Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, you... What you get is a t-shirt that says, I'm superior to that guy. Yeah, right. Okay. So now they're upset because they're losing jobs. And what you don't have is being taken from you by those people. That's the That's the the key. And so what I'm trying to do is say, okay, we're in this boat together. We have all been played by this system. Okay. Donald Trump is not your savior. You know, he's talking like he is, but he'll say anything because that's what they do. They being the wealthy elite. You know, he's never struggled, ever. Right. My dad gave me a million dollars. Boo-hoo. Right. <laughs> you know? right. um, but here's the thing. You got poor, poor people in Wyoming and Indiana and Ohio, Appalachians, you know, and all these different places who are struggling. The, you know, and they had the benefit immediately after World War II uh, to enjoy the prosperity that they've never enjoyed prior to that, coming off of a depression. And then within 40 years, they start losing share. Why? Because we're not in reconstruction anymore. Japan doesn't need us to reconstruct their country anymore. Europe doesn't need us to do that anymore. So no, we're not raking in the money, but the elite still are. So now the steel mills are closing, the coal mines are closing, all the things that they relied, tr- railroading, all the things that they relied on to bring them up to the middle class are going away, okay? And uh, even today, people who are making good money, six-figure income, they're still a check away from poverty, okay? So there is this fear that's out there in Europe and in, in, in America. The bad news is it will have us making a really, really bad choice, okay? And at the same time, through their fear, all of this activity is taking place between police and black people and Hispanics and everything else because the powers that be are saying, they're your problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've always pictured, I, I want to do this so bad. I want to have, I want to do a, a short film that actually shows one day all, you know, poor blacks, poor whites, Hispanics and everything like that. And one day they just show up at one of these wealthy elites front door, black guy, white guys in his hood, black guys are in his gang where everyone's in whatever stereotypical wear that you could see, uh, coal miners and everything else. And just, and they just basically say, this man was never my problem. Mm-hmm. This man could have been my asset, but you kept us apart from each other. And I don't have anything to show for anything that you said. Yeah. Because that's what's really happening. Yeah, it's interesting. I I always say that uh, one of the biggest lies in America is convincing the middle class that the poor people Mm -hmm. are the ones keeping them down. Yes. It's a huge lie in this country. It's huge. Yeah, it's It's a real problem. The thing about that is when a person of power pits the people beneath them against each other by convincing them you're better than them, they're better than you, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
they're recycling their beliefs because they think they're better than everybody. Right. And that that whole thing is bullshit. And mm -hmm. and also and the great tragic fallacy of man, as far as I see it and all my optimism, is that the misunderstanding and the, the the stupidity that you think people as batteries for money is the way to go. When if if you could get over the idea that well I'm better than all of them, so how do I use these batteries the most efficiently? If you could get over that and say there's no difference between me up here on this pedestal and them, right. and maybe they're actually better than me because I got ideas, I could do this, I could work hard and make this happen. Well, if all those people were had the same uh, energy behind them that I do because I was Donald Trump or whatever. I was mm -hmm. born in this world that said, you're going to do amazing things, little Donnie Trump. You're, mm -hmm. you're going to be the little Superman with the special hair. And like, <laughs> and if, if everybody ever on planet Earth, now I know that gets into the like, everybody gets a trophy. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm just talking about the fact that everybody values, I can make this world better than it is right now. And that, that's just as easy to get behind as like, I can go do, I can go be a badass or I can go be tough or whatever. It, it's just, we never say it because it's so much easier to go negative. Negative is always, that's the thing about negativity. It's lazy, it's easy because the universe, no matter what we do, and no matter what you believe, reality kills things. Yeah. It rusts, it mm -hmm. disintegrates, it goes away. Exactly. And so therefore it will always be easier and lazier to destroy more or to sit back and let it get destroyed. And from my experience, like wherever people start out and wherever they're going to stay, so if they're upper socioeconomic, lower, whatever, and they're going to kind of generally stay in that unless they have a breakthrough up or down mm -hmm. somehow, but they're going to generally stay in that like field, they're going to, the negative people sink to the bottom of that field and the positive people sink, uh, rise to the top of that right. field. And the people who break through upwards are extremely positive mm -hmm. focused and people who have awful dramatic slides downward are extremely negative focus and it just mm -hmm. goes back to what you were saying before i mean it's like the universe basically plays out whatever you imagine you exactly know? i mean you know growing up as a it's funny funny this takes us back to the to the whole religious thing I, I growing up as a christian i had one narrative that i was you know that i was married to um god is this thing god is never anything anyone else's version of god but the god that i grew up with um and the Bible is the infallible word of God and in the book of Revelations. And a lot of things that I believed around that have changed. Now, I still believe in God, but a lot of, of the specific things I believe have changed. But there's one thing about it that has not changed, interestingly enough, and that is my um, view of the book of Revelations, of all things. Because if you really kind of look at it and you pay attention to what it's saying and get away from the religious iconography, it's basically saying one thing. Man will go extinct. And man will do it to himself. Yeah. You know, I don't care if angels pouring out vials and blowing trumpets or not. Basically, man is the component that does himself in. And that's what it's saying. Uh, now, there'll be people, religious, who will argue all kinds of things. And I'll just tell them, you need to go back and read it again and then read a newspaper. You know, <laughs> and don't read, you know, what some religious group is telling you to believe. Look at it for yourself. What I come away with is this. We have a limited amount of time in which to make a mark on this earth. You know, when we put our thread on the fabric and become part of the fabric of human existence, we have that amount of time, but, our, but that impact goes on mm -hmm. into eternity because someone's always going to land someplace where you existed, no matter how far away you get. Can you take your time and make it a positive or you make it a negative? Mm -hmm. Either way, it's going to do something for somebody yeah. because it's going to be left up to that person how they came into the earth, what they do while they're here. That's going to turn it into a positive. You know, Hitler existed. That means people have, have uh, learned from his part on the thread, I don't want to be like Hitler. Right. And I don't want another Hitler to come. So now they're fighting against a Trump mm -hmm. because they realize this kind of megalomanic mentality is... It's out there. It's, it's in humanity. And if we don't check it, it will constantly rise up. Yeah. Have you noticed how many uh, uh, authoritarian figures there are? We have more than we've ever seen in any one time ever. We've got Putin and we have uh, authority figures. Now Eastern Europe are starting to rise up yeah. again. And it's North kind of Korea like, and wow. All, yeah. And now you've got somebody in, in America. Can you imagine having you know, 20 countries full of dictators all staring each other down? <laughs> That's crazy to me. Um, and so there has to be some 
set of checks and balances that come from our ability to make a choice for life and for humanity over power, you know, and, and that's where, where it is for any of us. Mm-hmm. I do believe, you know, according to what the Bible says in Revelation, there is an extinction event coming that the earth will not be able to sustain humanity at the numbers that we're constantly increasing. You know, just being good to each other and let's all collectively say, you know what, let's just stop wars. Okay, great, we're done with wars. And someone comes up with the cure for cancer. Thank you, God, we're over cancer. Zika's gone too. Okay, that means overpopulation. We don't have the, in other words, we don't have the ability to do anything more or less than anything else in nature. When there's too much, there has to be a culling. Right. It just is what it is. But between that time and this time, we need to at least be good to one another. Yeah. Well, I think that is a good, a good word of wisdom to uh, bring us to a close here. And, I, and Alfonso, you are, um, you are a working, successful actor. You are a uh, working, successful voice actor. You are Yay, a, me! <laughs> you are, uh, as we mentioned before, the, the son of Morgan Freeman, which leads a lot of uh, interview questions, leads to a lot of interview questions, surely. And... Uh, you are a new transplant to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Love this place. Welcome, welcome, welcome. But you guys can't come. You cannot come. Oh, yeah, right. We don't want to turn this place yes. into Charlotte. We really don't yeah, like it at all. We hate it here. Hate it Stay here. away. It. It's awful. It smells like uh, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and you are also a, uh, a person who seems to have the, um, the end of the world <laughs> or the apocalypse in your, uh, in your thoughts. Uh, and I think that informs your behavior, but it sounds like it informs your behavior in a way to be good and positive in the world. Yeah, that's about it. We've got so much time. We're going to die anyway. <laughs> Let's die with a smile on our face. You know? Hey, I hear yeah. you. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hey. Give me a call. Absolutely. And let's end with um, some words of wisdom from our silent Micah. Silent Micah. Wow. That was poignant. Man, I just, I'm I'm in tears. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Goodness. Um, is that a poem, or were you just talking? <laughs> were you just—is that freestyle? Are those lyrics? Were you? Did you make that up on is the that spot? Neil Diamond. <laughs> Let's try with some music. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that was good. All right, I guess we'll see you next week on Old Town New World. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>